we need to actually start thinking about absolute drawdowns in the consumption of certain product categories. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Dr Philip Baker, who is a public health and food systems expert who works at Deakin University and who, with international and Australian research colleagues, is a recognised champion of innovative research into the human and planetary health challenges of our food systems. That include key challenges posed by the accelerating worldwide spread of globalised diets and the related supply chains and power networks that travel with them. You might recall that I spoke with Phil uh, for one of the scene-setting early episodes of Nourishing Matters, and that episode was all about how junk food is junking our health and the planet. Since then, the challenges posed by ultra-processed foods to human health, to biodiversity and agrobiodiversity have become ever more urgent. And there's been an incredible surge of research, but the linked up problems of ultra-processed foods are yet to receive the attention they really deserve, it seems, in international development agendas and forums such as the UN Food Systems Summit held in late 2021. So in this episode, we're digging in to talk further about ultra-processed foods and why they are just so key as a focus for change. Phil, it is so great to speak with you again. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Anthea. It's great to be back here on your podcast. You you and your conversations are, are much loved by our listeners. <laughs> Let's just dive straight in because ultra-processed foods and getting ahead around what they are is just so key. Phil, can you tell us about the role of food processing, traditional food processing in human diets? Thanks, Anthea. This is a really important question to start with, I think, because when we talk about ultra-processed foods, we're not against, we're not talking against food processing. Food processing has really been a long part of human history. And when you think about it, all food is processed at least to some degree. Even biting and chewing food is a form of processing. But we also dry and mill grain to make flour and bread. We churn milk to make butter. We we can uh, we can foods like fish, vegetable, and beans. This is all, these are all forms of food processing. Many food processing techniques have been around for centuries to preserve food, to make them tastier, more nutritious and durable. Uh, Techniques like drying, salting, fermenting, roasting, and there are other techniques as well. And these foods, um, these processed foods form the basis of many cuisines, whether it's kimchi in Korea, cheese in France, injera bread in Ethiopia. Uh, And food processing has provided durable fodder for marching for armies. Uh, for storing grain and other foods, which have in turn um, supported the growth of cities and even entire civilizations. So processing food is very much a part of and related to uh, and indeed enabling human evolution and uh, development itself. So can you tell us about ultra-processed foods um, and what is what is it about them that are, that is significantly different from traditional forms of food processing? Yeah, so we we've been using the term we use the term novel um, to describe ultra processed foods in that they are a relatively new new component of human diets. Human beings, you know, have, have only really been exposed to these foods 
uh, over the past uh, half century or so. And this reflects the development of really novel processing techniques that have been developed in the context of industrializing food systems um, to create these so-called ultra-processed foods. So um, the term ultra-processed foods emerged in 2009 when it was proposed by Carlos Montero and his colleagues in Brazil. Before this, we saw lots of similar terms that were used to describe what we call foods to limit. So terms like high sugar, high fat, high salt foods, discretionary foods, junk foods, and so on. So, but the idea put forward by Carlos and his team um, was really novel because it shifted the focus. And what, the, what that team proposed was that it's the nature, the degree, and the purpose of food processing that influences the relationship between food, health, and disease by international organizations, National governments are using the term in their dietary guidelines, and we're also seeing it being extensively used by advocates and in the media as, as well. So lots of really interesting media articles now using this concept. So it's very useful as a concept. So what are ultra-processed foods? Well, the working definition is that they are formulations of ingredients. So not whole foods, they are formulations of ingredients that are made through a series of industrial processes many of which require sophisticated equipment and technology of an industrial nature. They usually contain, uh, how do we know it's an ultra-processed food? Well, they usually contain little or absolutely no um, whole food itself. They're typically ready to heat, you know, in the microwave, for example, or ready to consume straight out of the packet. They're typically fatty, salty, or sugary, low in dietary fiber. And they also uh, contain industrial ad additives and are made using processing techniques that you would not use at home um, in your kitchen. So there are lots of examples that your listeners will know very well. Sugary drinks, uh, chips, confectionery, ice cream and packaged desserts, um, many refined mass-produced breads, margarines and spreads like Nutella, cakes, biscuits, sugary breakfast cereals, hamburgers, pizza, uh, hot dogs, uh, nuggets and other meat products, instant noodles, and also in what I've been researching a lot recently are many baby food products like these follow-on milks, growing up milks, um, and, and cereal mixes as well. And then, you know, things like sauces and food flavorings that have like a cornucopia of different numbers in their labelling. All of that's an ultra-processed food. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. So so what's the big picture scenario or, you know, the helicopter outlook in terms of how these foods are accelerating or increasing into our foods and our food system? Uh, yeah, this, so this is where, um, this is my favourite research topic, which is really to ask, uh, <laughs> you know, how on a global scale, how are human diets changing? And what we report in our recent research is that human diets are in general becoming increasingly processed and especially ultra processed as these foods have become more prevalent in nearly all countries uh, and especially over the past half century or so. Now, arguably the first, I've done some historical research into this topic as well, and arguably the first ultra processed food emerged in the 18th century uh, when we saw uh, carbonated sugary drinks uh, for the first time, Schweppes, uh, for example. But it wasn't really until innovations that occurred during 
World War One and Two, when we started to see new technologies to create foods for fighting soldiers in the form of energy dense food rations and highly durable, tasty foods. Uh, you know, this is all about how can we how can we produce durable foods for fighting soldiers packed with energy that are tasty that that soldiers like to eat. So we saw the the initial spread of lots of these foods during that period. So the World War Two, for example, was really the first time we saw Coca-Cola uh, spread on mass um, through the US Army around the world. Products like Spam and other reconstituted meat products, we also saw go with these armies and still remain today is very, you know, common in those in those local diets. But you know, what's really what has really driven, you know, the the up until the 1970s and 80s, ultra-processed food consumption was largely limited to Western countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, Western Europe, for example. But it's only in the last couple of decades where we've seen globalization really accelerate the spread of these foods as transnational companies like Nestle, Coca-Cola, and McDonald's, which largely originate in Europe or the United States, have invested massively and expanding uh, their supply chains and their marketing activities in emerging economies or emerging markets. So we see these companies building new manufacturing plants, spending vast sums of marketing their products um, in countries like China, Brazil, and South Africa. Okay, so, so Phil, what does the science or the evidence say about the impact of ultra-processed foods on human health? I mean, you know, discretion—they're more than discretionary foods, aren't they? They're now becoming integral to so many of our everyday foods that people wouldn't even see as discretionary. Can Can you talk about the 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 impact of UPFs on on human health? Yeah. So this is one I think one of the most pressing questions that we need to ask in in global health is what are the implications of the rise of ultra processed foods in human diets for health? This is a question I think that has been very much neglected uh, internationally up until recently. And there's much more, I think we're going to see much more action on this uh, over the next couple of years. Um, so, so what is the impact on human health? Well, we now have many studies, many high quality studies and multiple systematic reviews showing that exposure to ultra processed foods in the diet. So more ultra processed foods in the diet associates with quite a number of adverse health outcomes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cancers, depression, and several other uh, adverse health outcomes. And there appears to be a dose-response relationship. So the greater the share of UPFs in the diet, the stronger these associations. There's also really good evidence that also shows um, high UPF consumption associates with much lower diet quality in both children and adults. So as the share of, as the share of ultra-processed food in the diet goes up, we tend to see a reduction in positive dietary markers like protein and fiber and an increase in negative dietary markers like added sugars, salt, trans fat, and overall energy density. So it's really becoming very clear that um, ultra-processed foods have a detrimental impact on human health mediated through impacts on the diet. Yeah, so they're knocking out high-nutrient foods but um, replacing them with uh, other ones that are tricky to metabolize and might not be adding much to the system. When we've chatted previously, you've mentioned that's really important to understanding um, why UPFs are such a problem is, is, is around understanding the mechanisms by which they harm human health. It's not just that they're tricky foods, but they actually 
intersect with mechanisms that uh, that we need for good health. Can can you can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so this is really important to understand in relation to the ultra-processed food concept and why it's different to how we conceptualise harmful foods or dietary risk factors. So there is often the perception that the harms caused by junk food or ultra-processed food relate to their nutrient profile alone because they're high in added sugars, salt and fat or because they're low in fibre or other you know, protective things we consider to be protective against um, disease. However, what, what, what the focus on processing also makes us pay attention to is that there are multiple other mechanisms that are not related to nutrients that might help to explain the impacts on human health. For example, processing te- techniques like extru- extrusion, cooking, refining and fractioning, break down the food matrix, uh, making starches and sugars more available than, say, for example, whole fruits and vegetables. So degrading the food matrix um, is, is one uh, key mechanism. Another is high temperature cooking, especially uh, frying or deep frying carbohydrate rich foods like potato chips, for example, can produce moderately genotoxic or carcinogenic byproducts. So we see these, these uh, genotoxic um, markers in diets containing high profile, um, ultra processed foods as well. And then of course is linked with, uh, with cancer uh, potentially, potentially, I should say, linked with cancer. Diets high in ultra, in ultra processed foods and the additives they contain also appear to have significant effects on the microbes in our gut. So the gut microflora, which appears to in turn impact on the permeability of our gut wall and is linked with inflammation. And as we know, many diseases like cardiovascular disease, cancer are themselves linked with inflammation. So it's not just nutrients, it's also these other non-nutrient related mechanisms. Uh, We also know from a very good randomized control trial that even when you control for the nutrient content of foods and the overall diet, people consume more calories on an ultra processed diet compared with a minimally processed one. So if you control for the nutrients in the foods, um, people consume more calories on an ultra processed diet than a um, non-ultra processed one. Yeah, so... I think we're, we're really only starting to understand these mechanisms, but it opens up a whole new way of, you know, thinking about the harms that ultra-processed foods, you know, are causing to human health. And it's, these, are not, these are not mechanisms that we can easily address through things like reformulating ultra-processed foods, because reformulation is really about, you know, adding or subtracting nutrients, whereas these are non-nutrient related mechanisms. They're also formulated to be pretty desirable and tasty, aren't they? They sort of are a little bit addictive in some ways. They want you want to eat more and it takes more to fill up, I understand, because there's not as much fiber in them. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so mix so the question is as to what makes people consume more ultra processed foods relative to um, minimally processed foods. So why do you eat more corn chips instead of corn for the same uh, controlling for everything else? Um, that's a question that's you know some people are still sort of looking into, mm. um, but what you said is you know a, a very good sort of hypothesis that you know you degrade the food matrix, um, they're less filling, less satiating, um, but also these foods often contain you know very attractive sensory properties. They they you know olfactory uh, impacts uh, the taste, the smell even the noise that a chip makes as you bite into it, you know, this is engineered um, to 
you know, maximize consumption, which is a reflection, as many people have said, of the, you know, the business model of the ultra processed food industry itself. You know, some people say ultra processed foods are addictive or at least quasi addictive. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that is contested. And, you know, it's not the same, for example, as saying they're addictive like heroin or, or, or nicotine, but there is also some evidence around, um, especially in certain certain susceptible people, that these products have uh, you know addictive um, properties uh, that promote you know overconsumption. Interesting. What about um, what are the impacts of ultra processed foods on the environment, and and where are those impacts most directly hitting home? Yeah, so this is a really important emerging area of research. Uh, one actually that one of our brilliant. PhD students, um, Kim Anastasio is investigating, uh, and other colleagues at, at Deakin as well. The, the important starting point for a conversation about ultra-processed foods and the environmental impacts is that, is that these foods are discretionary. They are not necessary for a healthy human diet. And as I've just mentioned, they are even harmful to, to human health. So the food industry is essentially using scarce environmental resources to produce what are essentially unnecessary food products. Um, This alone, I think, brings into question the very role these foods should play and are playing in sustainable um, human development. And I think we need to link our conversations about ultra-processed foods to conversations that are happening in the sustainable consumption um, literature as well, which is really starting to question, you know, we need to actually start thinking about absolute drawdowns in the consumption of certain product categories that are just simply unnecessary. You know, if, if, if we are talking about a two degree plus warming scenario, you know, we need to start thinking about what, what product categories uh, are we consuming that are, that are unnecessary? Uh, they're, they're generating unnecessary um, emissions. Now that might sound like a radical proposition and many of my colleagues would actually disagree with the proposition that we should eliminate certain types of um, products. But I would argue that we're already doing that. I mean, speaking from New Zealand right now, where they're talking about a smoke-free New Zealand by uh, 2050, I think, uh, smoke-free Pacific Islands. Why not a sh- why not a, a free from sugary drinks, um, you know, world as well? That that I think is where we need to sort of think about and stretch our imagination and push this agenda forward. But but what about the actual studies on this topic? Well, when we look at the studies on the defined environmental impacts, we can attribute ultra-processed foods, and and these are a limited number of studies. So it is very context-dependent. It differs from country to country. In Australia, at least, uh, we're talking about a third of total diet-related greenhouse gas emissions, about a third of total diet-related land use, um, up to 25% of of diet-related water use, and about a third of total diet-related biodiversity loss. Okay, these are unnecessary products. Uh, a third of uh, attributed to a third of, to- of, of, of biodiversity loss. That, that's, uh, I think we, we really need to talk about that uh, a lot more. The other thing, and I've mentioned this before on the last podcast, um, is, is the massive volumes of plastic waste that are being generated by ultra processed food products that are entering into marine ecosystems, being consumed by, by wildlife, you know, entering into the human food chain in the form of microplastics. Uh, but also being burned uh, and contributing to emissions as well. A lot of that plastic waste gets burned and ends up in our atmosphere. I would highly recommend reading um, 
a new report called Talking Trash um, about how food companies are polluting the environment with their packaging and really how their commitments to recycling and reducing plastic waste are essentially just greenwashing or, or just really just public relations. They're saying they're doing all these things like using less plastic and so on and so forth. Um, and they're committed to things like recycling. But at the end of the day, just a very, very tiny fraction of their products are recycled. And we see the use of their plastic, use of plastics by these companies is increasing year on year on year, not reducing. So, you know, we need to square that uh, as well. And so much of that plastic is required because a lot of these products are traveling huge, mar- food, huge food miles too, aren't they? Like it's, it's, it's sort of over-packaged to be overly protected to travel very long distances and to be able to be stored on shelves for months, if not years. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we see packaging being used for fruits and vegetables and, you know, non-ultra-processed products as well. But there's a big difference, right? Because those foods are actually mm. should be part of a healthy human diet. Um, now, this, this is packaging that's being used to, to, for foods that are harmful to, to human health. Um, and yeah, the, the other point you're, you're right about is that food packaging, plastic packaging enables, you know, the proliferation of ultra processed foods. I mean, think about, you know, when you go into the middle section of the supermarket where, where ultra processed foods can be found predominantly, it's just plastic. You know, that's what it is. These are foods ringed about by, by plastic. Lots of fruits and vegetables have their own packaging, you know, the skin on a banana, um, or the tomato, or, you know, mm. uh, but uh, yeah, you have to, these foods uh, have to come in packages. And layers of film, which are really hard to recycle and you don't know what to do with them when you go to throw it up. Yeah, and uh, a lot of these, a lot of these, these, um, these plastic, these packaging technologies are really interesting because they've, they've actually allowed for the production of entirely new ultra-processed food uh, categories. So microwavable popcorn, for example, which is a very commonly consumed ultra-processed food product, resulted from the invention of, you know, heat-resistant plastic um, packaging. Gosh, the environmental impacts of ultra-processed foods, it's, you know, there's a whole system cycle we could talk in layers of depth, I suppose. But where where are those impacts most directly hitting home? And perhaps I suppose we could focus in on the the crops, the key sort of monocultural crops that tend to be utilised a lot in ultra-processed foods, soy, wheat, sugar, palm oil. So where, where are the environmental impacts of production of commodities hitting home most severely? Yeah, it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because, you know, a lot of the... A lot of a lot of research has been done on the environmental impacts of animal source foods and and meat in particular, and that's quite easy, you know relatively straightforward. You know, meat um, animal source foods typically produced and consumed um, within a defined geographical space, like most mostly you know local. Some 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 global trade in, in meat products, um, and you're really talking about you know um, quite simple um, food products. Uh, when you talk about meat, when you talk about ultra processed foods, I mean, some of them can contain, you know, 20, 30 ingredients. And those ingredients could be sourced locally, regionally, nationally, or globally. So they're really assemblages of, of ingredients uh, from lots of different places. How do you even begin to unpack the environmental impacts of a product like that? How do you do that scientifically? That's a 
conversation that we're having at the moment and sort of thinking about, you know, how we do that. But when you, the, the other thing is that what this does from a, for the consumer is that it distances the, um, it very strongly distances the consumer from those environmental impacts. How do you know what the environmental impacts are of the product that you're purchasing and consuming when it's, a, it's an assemblage of globally sourced products, right? Um, that's very difficult to do. And some people have proposed, you know, environmental labeling. Um, and again, that, you know, this just poses so many tricky questions around how you would actually go about doing that. One, one, way, to, one way to approach this problem is to think about the, the, the most common ingredients that are used in ultra-processed food um, manufacturing. So here we can talk about, for example, uh, palm oil. And, you know, I've, I've, I talk about palm oil way too much, but some, some we don't really have good estimates around how much palm oil is being used in ultra-processed food manufacturing, but the, the existing estimates say somewhere between 50 to 70% of ultra-processed food products contain palm oil, and, and nearly all of that palm oil is produced in just two countries, Indonesia and Malaysia. And we know that you know, deforestation, biodiversity loss, land use change, uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with that industry are you know, extensive and significant. Um, lots of advocacy, international activity has gone on to work with those countries to stop this from happening. Uh, the food companies themselves, um, the palm oil industry has attempted to establish, you know, voluntary, you know, self-governance type, type of actions to, you know, claim their sourcing palm oil sustainably. And yet <laughs> consumption of their foods goes up year on year on year. Uh, the use of palm oil goes up year on year on year. How do we square that logic? We can't. We can't. We can't commit to using, you know, a product like um, an ingredient like palm oil sustainably, when um, at, uh, when at the same time, the the use of that product is is growing. Um, that ingredient is growing year on year on year. The uh, there's also just a huge number of questions around how effective some of those company, you know, commitments to sustainable sourcing actually are. And when you actually when you actually question, you know, Nestle, for example, around how much of your palm oil is sustainable, much like when you question about, you know, how much of your cocoa is grown in a human rights compliant manner, the answers quickly get very murky. And even the company will admit that, you know, it's it's, it's very difficult to trace some of these ingredients. And I think in one of your papers, you talk about um, particularly cocoa and some vegetable oils are particularly high per kilogram species extinction rate. So it's, you know, it's, it's um, biodiversity loss along with agrobiodiversity loss as things become more monocultural. It's, it's obviously circular and linked up, isn't it? When you mentioned cocoa, I was fascinated, fascinated to read. I mean, we know about the human rights and ethical issues, but the, <sighs> the per kilogram uh, species loss connections was really interesting to read mm. yeah 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 no I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that question um, actually because it it brings me to another point which is that you know this this question around agro agrodiversity right mm. so you know this this decline in agrodiversity uh, and you know you know we would argue that ultra processed foods of and we we have recently argued actually in a publication that these products are contributing to a decline in agrodiversity because they tend to use, you know, you can produce a huge diversity of ultra-processed food products. So you see 
this apparent diversity on your supermarket shelves, right? You're like, well, you walk into a supermarket, it's like a cornucopia of choice. Um, however, a lot of those ingredients, a lot of those products are made from the same ingredients, which have been extracted or refined from those primary agricultural commodities, soy, wheat, uh, corn, palm oil, uh, cane sugar, um, beet sugar, uh, for example. And so as UPFs increase, and this is a very, you know, very much a part of the company's, um, you know, why they are so profitable. You can turn a very cheap uh, primary agricultural commodity, which is grown in these large, you know, mono, mono crops uh, at, at huge scale. Uh, using you know energy intensive inputs uh, to produce extremely cheap ingredients that go into the food, but you can also then you know fractionate and refine those commodities into lots of other ingredients. So corn is the classic example, right? You can you can you can break corn down into lots of different things: sugars, uh, starches, uh, many more other things that you can use to then assemble a variety of different of different products mm. and where those crops are grown it, when you talk about agrobiodiversity it's it's kind of got lots of spokes hasn't it i mean it's it, it's an intensification of just a few crops at the expense of more agrobiodiversity in the food landscape and often in the places where those big crops are being grown uh, in the tropics and middle-income and low-income countries, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we do need to do more research on this because, um, you know, when you go to the UN Food Systems Summit last year, was this talked about? No, it wasn't. Or well, it was by some people, but it was pretty much ignored, didn't really find its way into the outcome documents. But even when you look at FAO or Bioversity or, you know, major international organisations, research institutes working on, you know, issues around biodiversity, the term ultra, -pro you know, ultra processed foods doesn't even appear. Um, so, you know, that's what we've been arguing. You know, if, if, if we're seeing studies where you can attribute a third of diet related biodiversity loss to ultra processed foods, it's nonsensical to exclude this from, you know, global uh, international food systems dialogues. Get it into the lexicon and into the onto the agenda, um, which is what you're very committed to doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've talked about environmental impacts, huge and broad, many of your amazing PhD students working on it. What about how the consumption of UPFs is changing? I know you've already mentioned that it's it's growing and escalating rapidly. Do you want to comment on where the change is perhaps most dramatic? I know we did talk about that a bit in the last episode or any changes to that? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, ultra-processed foods emerged in high-income Western countries, you know, first of all. So we see very high levels of consumption of ultra-processed foods in high-income countries like the, U the US, where we see about 60% uh, of calories come from ultra-processed foods. In Australia, where, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50% of calories uh, come from ultra-processed foods. So, so very high levels. So the policy objectives in countries like Australia and the United States is to draw down consumption. We need to reduce consumption of these products. But where we see, um, what, we, what we also find that's interesting is that there's huge variation between high-income countries in terms of the levels of ultra-processed food consumption on a per capita basis. So what does, that, what does that say? Well, it says that some countries have managed to reach very high levels of income and living standards, yet have resisted um, the entry of ultra-processed foods into their diets, at least to some extent, whereas other countries have you know, just fully embrace these products and that which now are dominant in their food supply. 
And what we would argue is that this reflects the different political economies um, of those countries, different power relations. And what this reflects is different forms and, and scales of industrial food production, but also the extent to which uh, traditional um, food you know, production and processing practices, traditional diets uh, resist um, ultra-processed foods. So, you know, for example, South Korea has quite low, um, relatively low per capita levels of ultra-processed foods. That's really interesting. And that's something we need to do more research on. It's not just why, why are levels high in some countries, but also why are they low in others? But where we see the real rise in consumption, I mentioned it earlier, is in the 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 rapid and industrializing, urbanizing middle-income countries. So countries like China, Brazil, South Africa, and and this is where the industry really is pursuing, you know, growth opportunities. This is a I, I sort of argued, you know, I mentioned political economy before, but this is really a reflection of modern. Uh, or, or, you know, contemporary global capitalism, right? So the companies have stagnating sales or, you know, saturated sales in high-income countries. So they're not, they're not really generating a lot of growth in, in those high-income countries. So, how you know, in a capitalist system, you have to continue to grow, right, um, to generate those returns for shareholders. So that's what they're doing. They're spreading into... Develop, um, these emerging uh, uh, markets. However, what we're also seeing, um, and this is itself um, in the pursuit of new profit opportunities, is a huge amount of innovation in the sector. So the invention of new product categories that uh, often are higher value product categories. So for example, in Australia and the United States, we see a massive decline or very rapid decline in carbonated beverage consumption. So Coca-Cola fizzy drinks, um, at the same time, we've seen a surge in much higher value energy drinks and sports drinks, for example. So the industry is not, you know, we might see a decline in certain categories, but the industry at the end of the day is still making more money than it used to. So sales are still going up. They're just going up through, you know, different types of um, higher value product categories. So it's a really interesting, you know, the rise of ultra processed foods is a reflection of, I would say, you know, contemporary global capitalism itself. And that, that in, in essence, is, is the root driver uh, of, of the rise. Just the push of capitalism and growth? I, I would. I, I mean, it's not the only factor, but yes. What drives ultra-processed food consumption? Well, we know that um, as people's incomes begin to rise, as people begin to live in cities and, you know, um, including, you know, slums, the, the, the growth of these mega slums and lots of cities, we see changes in work and working conditions, more service-based industries, more manufacturing, and changes in household dynamics, right? The entry of, um, you know, the, the dual earner households, for example, and it all drives demand for high-value foods like ultra-processed foods. It also drives demand for convenience products. So ultra-processed foods are perfect in terms of delivering, you know, for, on that demand. However, contemporary global capitalism also you know, drives the production of cheap commodity ingredients that are used in manufacturing. Um, it drives, you know, the development of new agricultural and manufacturing technologies, like high-yielding, you know, um, oil seeds, um, high-yielding crops, um, plastic packaging technologies, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and then you also have the globalization of the industry itself and its marketing practices. And this is the this is the key in terms of you know what 
how do we understand the normalization of ultra processed foods? Because it's not just, it's just not a matter of getting your products into a country. You also have to convince people to consume them, right? And if you have competitors in that country, you have to beat the competition. And that competition is, you know, companies selling similar products, but it's also um, traditional, traditional, you know, foods. Um, so how do you do that? Well, one, you, you normalize your products by investing massive amounts of money into um, marketing those products through traditional media, mass media, like, you know, television, but also, and now uh, in a dominant way through uh, digital and, and social media. And, you know, TikTok is just prolific now in terms of uh, the marketing of ultra-processed foods. Um, and I, I would just also say that, and this is probably one of the more fascinating aspects of this for me, uh, is that um, it's also how do, you, how do you convince populations of strong traditional food cultures to consume very novel global um, foreign, you know, food products? And here we see this really remarkable um, hybridization of diets, which incorporate both traditional and global, you know, um, foods into into new types of cuisines. And the companies are very, very good at doing this and responding to this. And to give you an example, my favorite products um, to study when it comes to ultra processed foods is um, Maggi Two Minute Noodles, which is a Nestle product. And if you go to Papua New Guinea, and people have written about this, you can find Maggi two-minute noodles everywhere. You know, and very cheap, 10, 20 cents a packet, um, very durable. And uh, you can, you know, mix these, these products with traditional foods to create, you know, noodle dishes. And yeah, two-minute noodles are sold everywhere in, in cooked form as well for, for busy workers and the urban centers in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, so the companies also, you know, adapt their marketing strategies to reach these very low-income, um, very rural uh, consumers in least developed countries. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so quite simple, light and cheap uh, products that can work in a corner store in a context like the Papua New Guinea highlands or somewhere. And in the Australian context, we have where we have such a consolidated supermarket industry there's probably only a few companies that are offering that proliferation of thousands of new products each year into the aisles aren't there yeah yeah uh, that's right i mean so for what you're talking about there's a whole lot of things including nutrition transitions from in traditional societies that are urbanizing and also high income low income middle income countries the dynamics are different and at different stages but in one way or another you're talking about um uh, the role of ultra processed foods in our food systems, reflecting the sort of food system that we're in. So, so what 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 does it say about our global food system and where it's trending today? Yeah. So, just to build on what I said in my in, in the last uh, my answer to the last question, it tells us the rise of ultra processed foods uh, tells us a lot about how um, food systems are changing. Now, when we when we use the term global food system, well, it, it's, it's a problematic term because it sort of implies there's some sort of hegemonic overarching global food system. But really what we're talking about is a system of systems and food systems are actually hugely diverse, right? Um, if you go to the regional, national, local, even the household level, you know, you see different types of food systems with different types of features and characteristics. We know that ultra-processed food consumption is lowest in rural agrarian type food systems, subsistence, 
you know, rural economies. Um, it, but even then, you know, as I mentioned, in the case of Papua New Guinea, we do see some ultra-processed foods, you know, penetrating into those food systems, even extremely remote, you know, islands in the Pacific, you know, you'll see um, these products. As you, as you move more towards a industrial food system, you start to see ultra-processed foods um, consumption going up and also uh, a diversification of the types of ultra-processed foods that are consumed. And this really reflects a lot of many things um, relating to uh, technologies, for example, that are available to the general population. So, you know, if you, if you have a car-owning society, you know, people are going through drive fruits and for getting fast food. If you have a, a, a busy, you know, service-based or manufacturing sector, people are time-constrained, there's demand for convenience foods. If you have wealthy consumers, they might have things like refrigerators, uh, microwaves, things that they can use in their household to store different types of pro, uh, ultra-processed foods like ice creams, frozen desserts, ice blocks, um, ready meals, or to heat them and prepare them like, like microwaves, for example. So we see these quite interesting you know, um, differences from, from that sort of like you know, consumer perspective across different types of countries. However, we also need to think about this in terms of what it means in terms of the structural features of the food system. So just to give you an example, and, 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 and this is very much about the, the structure of the global food system in the context of uh, globalization. And we know that you know, since 1995, the World Trade Organization came into being. Since then, we've seen this explosion in the number of trade agreements. Some now call it hyper-globalization. It's, it's characteristically different from earlier stages of globalization because of the, the, the interconnectivity and, and the speed in which transactions are now being made on a global uh, economy. Ultra-processed foods are really the ideal product for such a global a global food system structured in this way. They're perfect if you're a transnational corporation who's able to access production inputs in, in a global economy of this nature. You can get cheap labor from wherever to assemble your products. You can get ingredients from all over the world from wherever they're cheapest. And you can start to consolidate your operations by acquiring, you know, doing mergers and acquisitions, buying up food companies in lots of different countries, and that you know reduces your uh, production costs further, has tax benefits, and so on. So all of a sudden, you're starting to get these extremely powerful corporations um, existing in our food system. Another another aspect of that is the rise of of supermarkets, and uh, including these global supermarket chains. And that, that's really important for ultra processed foods because you know what um, supermarkets essentially do is provision huge amounts and diversity of ultra-processed foods at much lower prices than, say, traditional, or sorry, small, you know, grocery stores or convenience stores. It also moves the food system towards a very data-driven, you know, food system. Uh, these supermarkets are collecting reams of data about their consumers, what ultra-processed food products are popular, which are not. This is creating a, a feedback loop to the manufacturers so they can start marketing and producing more novel products. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It drive, drives that innovation. Uh, it consolidates power, you know, amongst those manufacturers and supermarkets even more. Mm. Um, so, so you get this really interesting um, 
these interesting effects going in there. Very consolidated and incredibly vertically integrated, isn't it? Increasingly vertically and horizontally integrated. Yeah, the, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, IPS Food, uh, they've produced some really excellent reports on all of this. Highly recommend reading them. Too Big to Feed is, is, is a really excellent report uh, that you may have seen already. Yeah, but but the other the other thing here is just marketing, and you know, I mean, can we talk about you know when we talk about climate change or global environmental change, uh, biodiversity loss? Um, you know, we, we never talk about that. What's driving so much of this, and that 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 what's driving it is overconsumption. Um, so many of the problems that we're facing in the world today simply result from people consuming. Uh, too many things they don't need using money they don't have, and that includes that includes ultra processed foods. Yeah. That then leads to the question: What's driving overconsumption? And you know, marketing um, is really you know the core driver. And I think that's where we're going to focus a lot more critical uh, research. Is Given what we know about the adverse impacts on human health and environment of UPFs, what are or what can we, you and your amazing colleagues or agencies, policymakers, what what, what can we do about it? So, yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> oh my god, how do we how, how do we res- how do we respond to the labeling labeling? You know, it's sort of this 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 uh, this dominating. You know, it's and it's very. You know, I have been told that my framing of these issues is very, you know, daunting and um, somewhat overwhelming. It's really hard, isn't it? My response would be, well, yes, it is, because that's the reality that we face. And um, we do need to insert realism. You know, why, you know people will say, why, why would you talk about capitalism? You know, that's completely unrealistic. We're not going to change the system. And, you know, my answer is like, well, why wouldn't we talk about capitalism? You know, it's like talking about, your computer without talking about the operating system you know like it's like a laptop without windows um yeah but how do we how do we you know how do we transform a system like this um you know a hyper global you know capitalist um some people use the term neoliberal system that is really perpetuating you know the 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 rise of an overconsumption of not just ultra processed foods but a huge range of things which are you know, causing harm in the world today. Often in, often in public health, we're, we're strongly informed by tobacco control efforts, right? Whereas in today, what lessons can we learn from the past? What have we successfully done? Oh, tobacco control, that worked. You know, 50% of us smoked here in Australia in the 1950s, only, you know, less than 10%, I think, um, smoke today. So, yeah, and, and so, we you know, we often come up with this menu list of interventions. So, you know, putting labelling, um, requirements on food products, um, taxing products, restricting access to these foods in public institutions like schools and hospitals, restrictions on marketing to children, uh, especially you know, vulnerable consumers, protecting vulnerable consumers from corporate marketing, um, and promoting healthy diets is also part of that. You know, subsidizing fruits and vegetables, making them tax exempt, nutrition education, procurement standards, schools, school meals, that, that kind of thing. These recommendations are really important. And I, I agree with them, support them. But, you know, I do also question whether these will generate the system-wide change we need in the food system to draw down the consumption of ultra-processed foods and to halt the rise in their consumption. 
when you think about this as a systems problem, like ultra processed foods are the outcome or output of a system that generates ultra processed foods, mm. then how do we think about intervention in a system of this nature? And here, uh, all the all the actions that we're talking about from a public health standpoint, like labeling, are really minor, very minor changes in this massive system. So I do question the efficacy of them, but we do also know from good evaluation studies that if you put a warning label on ultra processed foods, it can reduce consumption. If you then tax those foods at the same time, if you then put restrictions on the marketing of them, um, that reduces them even further. So, you know, these, these, these interventions can work, but I would also argue, and this is where we really need to inject a huge amount of imagination and conceptual broadening of our approach where we really start to challenge the structural features of the food system that enable you know, this, this problem. That includes uh, reducing the economic and political power of the corporations themselves. So you know, one thing we know from a lot of research now uh, by colleagues like Melissa Mielon, for example, is that these um, food industries employ a huge global lobbying network. My own work on the baby food industry demonstrates that these companies invest many millions of dollars in their lobbying activities, which they coordinate on a global level to influence, you know, to, to effectively create favorable policy environments, to block regulation from happening. They, they fund research that's favorable to them, and they invest a lot of media and communications to p- portray this positive image of them. Um, so how do we constrain that? How do we remove or, or reduce the political and ideological influence of this industry how do we firewall science and the production of knowledge about our food system from corporate influence? Um, that requires a whole set of other interventions that we need to talk about. The other thing is that... Can I just interrupt you there? Those other interventions, what, at a really high-level corporate governance level around ESG and really wielding that sort of language of drawdown? I love the fact that you're using the word drawdown, no doubt, very deliberately in parallel with climate, you know, the drawdown project. Is, is that what you... Is that yeah, I'm no, I'm I'm not not advocating ESG approaches, which you know try attempt to responsibilize companies. Um, where we have seen, I mean, what was it? Unilever, you know, had a very vocal advocate and its CEO uh, for an ESG, you know, um, strongly ESG approach, and was basically taken down by aggressive shareholders. You know, they didn't want to bar of it. At the end of the day. These ESG approaches, they, they, they have to, when you think about the nature of the problem, we have to limit growth. We have to actually restrict growth um, and, and reverse it. A corporation requires growth. An ESG approach is, is incompatible with, you know, for me anyway, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but for me anyway, there's you can't square those two things. You can't say we're going to reduce our environmental impacts, while at the same time you're growing the sales of your products year and year and year. Even if you are reducing, you know, using 25% less plastic in your in your packaging, but you're growing sales, you know, um, at 10% a year. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Um, so we have to draw draw down the consumption and encourage business to get into different business. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, think about think about the the, the sort of approach that has dominated. Um, a lot in recent decades, which is partnership. And we see this 
this narrative of partnership or this framing of partnership as the solution at the international level, you know, FAO partnering with Danone, lots of governments having public-private partnerships um, with the food industry, including Australia. And what happens in these parts as a result of these partnerships? Well, <laughs> I can tell you now, nothing really happens. Um, you know, there is, I have not seen a single evaluation that demonstrates the efficacy of these, of these sorts of partnerships in um, attenuating, you know, the, the, the problems that we're talking about. Because what happens is that, you know, when you get a put um, the food industry together with government, together with civil society groups, you end up with the watering down of, of the action. You get a focus on things like reformulating ultra-processed food products. You do not get marketing restrictions, for example. So these partnerships are very, I would argue, very ineffective at addressing a problem which requires limiting or reducing uh, consumption. Thanks, Phil. I was going to ask you, are you hopeful about the actions that you've mentioned gaining traction? And uh, and the, the sort of lead into that was your, you know, the public health sort of tools and mix of tools, labelling, regulation, taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you've answered that already. Not so hopeful. It's a huge juggernaut and it needs more. There's a sense that uh, food citizens can only do so much when they're in a food environment that is uh, so overwhelming and uh, inundates you with offerings and messages. But you've also recently written a paper about the baby food baby food and milk uh, sector in the Philippines without going into that in too much detail. But that is an example of very empowered citizen action or consumer action. Would you like to comment on that as a model, possibly as a way of um, local and regional responses to ultra-processed food? Yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks for that question. I, I think that's also really important to think about not just um, a negative perception of what we can do in terms of limiting corporate power, but also a positive conceptualization. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people spin this narrative, or not spin, but, you know, it's sort of a, uh, a narrative of, you know, if we mobilise um, from, the, you know, create a grassroots movement um, around, you know, this issue, then we can generate the political commitment and will we need to, to get the change we need. And I, I'd agree with that. And, there, you know, there are food sovereignty, there's a food sovereignty movement, um, agroecological movement whole range of movements that uh, environmental movements, public health movements that intersect um, around the, in the space of ultra processed foods, but, you know, also around a whole range of other food systems issues. So, you know, I, I don't, I think it's a matter of sort of packaging ultra processed foods within that broader, you know, food movements or those food movements, and it does intersect with lots of them. Yeah. And it, but it's also um, um, a matter of mobilizing um, civil society coalitions around the issue itself. And so for me, this is where we need to expand our policy action frameworks in this space for uh, uh, resourcing, financing, supporting and enabling uh, civil society coalitions, leaders, you know, leadership, um, resourcing people to actually um, do this type of work, do the advocacy work, can actually generate real um, policy change, legislative change, as we've seen in lots of Latin American countries recently. So, you know, if you give, it's just like the companies, they spend millions on lobbying. If we are to dedicate, if we were to, some, to dedicate, um, you know, millions of resources in turn into civil society mobilization, that to me is an intervention in our food system. 
And that should be right up there, right alongside things like labeling, marketing restrictions. You know, those are all important, but we also need to do this enabling work um, and we need to invest resources into it. So, yeah, that's that's what I that's where I think a lot of that needs to go. And you know, we see we saw the the impacts of that in the Philippines, as the paper, you know, pointed out the mobilization of um, civil society groups, uh, women's groups, and working with international partners like WHO and UNICEF, and 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 government officials. You know, you create this coalition of the willing, and they they are there to generate um, political commitment for for action. And Phil, can you just, in a nutshell, describe what that coalition achieved in the Philippines, which, you know, is a country, you know, wrought with social um, inequities and divisions and and challenges. So it's it's so wonderful to hear that good news story about such a foundational food (laughs) for life (laughs) coming coming from that place. Just very briefly, can you describe what that coalition achieved with regard to uh, infant formula and young infant foods? Yeah, so that that research looked at um, the baby food industry. It's part of a much broader set of studies um, on the history, the political and economic um, sort of power of the baby food industry. And this broader question of like, how did yeah. how did these commercial baby food products um, sort of take over, you know, take over the world essentially and transform, like transform feeding babies from yeah. something that was done, was exclusively a social biocultural practice, you know, breastfeeding, producing, um, you know, preparing home prepared, home prepared foods being fed to for babies for, you know, Hundreds of thousands of years, right? Foundational stuff um, in the mammalian mammalian history, and then all of a sudden you have this, you know, transnational industry that comes along and says, "Well, actually, we've got a better way of doing it." You know, <laughs> so we want to make money. How do we commodify feeding babies? I mean, it's pretty much what what it is, right? And so all that research looks at it's an absolute poster child story this one yeah yeah it is and it's also an important one because you know this is real these are really the initial ultra processed foods that they you know children are exposed to and it's really important because this actually has an impact on taste preferences um dietary you know dietary choices right across life you know it's not just um in infancy so this industry has really expanded massively in the last uh several decades as well by producing lots of new products like like toddler milks, growing up milks, um, milks for pregnant, you know, mums, milks for breastfeeding, milks for, milks for breastfeeding mums. I mean, and... Uh, yeah, I, I thought we'd lost, I, I thought this battle had been fought and won, but clearly not. It's amazing reading that. No, well, I mean, because we've, you know, as advocates, we were like, let's restrict infant formula, right? Or let's restrict the marketing of breast milk substitutes the industry were just like, well, that only applies from the zero to six months only or zero to 12 months only. So if we're going to do all these restrictions around those products, we're going to start inventing all these other products so we can market around the regulations. And that's what they've done. So they've managed to, you know, increase their sales 40, a 36-fold, 35-fold since the International Code of Marketing of breast milk substitutes was adopted in 1981. There's been a 35-fold increase in their in their in their sales. So it's um you know you've got to you've got to give it to them, right? They're like, okay, they're, they're trying to regulate us. 
but it's not going to slow us down. In fact, it's actually, we're going to come up with all these other new ways of selling milk powder, you know, and, um, and they've done it. So anyway, I, sorry, I digressed a bit from the question. Okay, so the co- so the coalition got together, and what did they do? <laughs> so yeah, so the coalition in the Philippines um, involved. Well, it was really you know it was a sort of a loose coalition, I guess, because you had this social movement or this movement of mothers, you know, who who were frequently protesting, you know, running breastfeeding events, mass breastfeeding events with hundreds of mothers. Um, so, you know, this, this is about, that story is, is a lot of it's about the agency of, of mothers and women themselves, you know, which for me is a really positive story because yeah. um, often we talk about the stuff at a very high level, but we actually think, we actually forget to think about women and mothers themselves and the agency they have, the power they have to, to generate change. And, and that's, you know, part of the story in the Philippines. And, you know, we see breastfeeding mums protesting outside the Supreme Court when the baby food industry tried to sue the government for regulating the marketing of their products. You know, these, these protests um, went on. But the coalition was, was WHO, UNICEF, the Department of Health officials, um, and a number of um, civil society organizations working around um, child health development, breastfeeding, that worked, that worked together over, you know, quite a number of years in a coalition to propose new regulations around the marketing of um, these products, um, but also to create a national um, breastfeeding promotion and protection policy um, framework. Yeah, so it's quite a cool story. But, you know, what's also apparent from that is that these coalitions are also quite fragile. And, you know, it can just take, you might have one or two leaders that are, you know, doing all the work, you know, who are leading a coalition like that. But then those leaders might disappear or you might get a change in staff at UNICEF or WHO or in the Department of Health and all of a sudden the dynamics, you know, completely change. So that's what also amazed me about that story is the fragility of these coalitions. And I think that's where, Mm. you know, resourcing, the importance of resourcing and professionalising that type of work um, to create you know, and sustain um, coalitions. Almost like par- par- parallel citizen governance of, of sorts, yeah. Oh, my goodness, Phil, we could talk about ultra-processed foods and how integral they are to the corporate global food sector, its consolidation, influence and more, but I reckon that is definitely a subject for a, a further conversation or an additional conversation. We were going to talk about, you know, what, how can I best currently recognise an ultra-processed food and, and avoid them if possible. I mean, you've described what they are and it's discretionary in many ways, but... Are there particular ones that everyday consumers should be on alert for to look out for and especially avoid? Or is that a difficult question to tackle? No, I think it's um, it loops back to what I said earlier about, you know, what are ultra-processed foods? How do we, how do we know an ultra-processed food when we see one? Um, the dietary guidelines in Brazil are pretty good at doing this. Um, they actually recommend to limit ultra-processed foods in the diet, more and more dietary guidelines are adopting this recommendation um, across the world, which is good to see. But, you know, from a practical, pragmatic point of view, how do we, you know, communicate with consumers about, you know, identifying and avoiding ultra-processed foods? Well, the first thing to sort of consider is, you know, does the food contain any whole food or does it contain just ingredients? Um, 
that's one one way to sort of think about it. Another is, does it use ingredients? Has it been made in such a way that you know you you could do yourself and or use yourself in the kitchen at home? If it contains ingredients that you would never use in cooking yourself, then that's another indication that it's an ultra processed food. The third thing is if you look at the ingredients list, and, and this is what I say to my students all the time, you know, be a label gazer. You know, when you go into a supermarket, pick up a product, look at the look at the labels. Um, it's a bit time consuming, but you get very quick at it as you go. And does it contain cosmetic additives? So these are additives that change the flavor, the color, <laughs> the sensory properties of the food. And if it does, um, then another indication that it's an ultra processed food. Um, and and to avoid it. The other thing is, does it claim to be healthy? <laughs> so is it covered in marketing? Um, you know, that's probably the quickest way to determine if it's ultra processed or not is, is it making, you know, all sorts of claims? Is it saying it has added vitamins and minerals? If it does, they've had to add, you know, they've added those vitamins and minerals out back in because they took them out when they're ultra processing it. So, you know, things like that. You can very quickly, you know, ascertain. Yeah, I tend to avoid saying, you know, some ultra-processed foods are better than others because I think the general recommendation should just be to avoid the category altogether. I like those four points, though, and I particularly like if it claims to be healthy. But, healthy and if it's covered in marketing, look out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 borrowed from that's borrowed from from Michael Pollan. Um, so it's not actually my my saying, but. The, the other, you know, the other thing is that some healthy foods might actually claim to be healthy as well. So packaged blueberry, you know, frozen, frozen blueberries, you know, which contain just blueberries, you know, that's a, a minimally processed food, right? Or unprocessed food. So, you know, might say, you know, all sorts of stuff on the label. So, so don't, you know, that's why I say like use those four different things um, together. Yep. Make a judgment. To make a judgment. Fantastic. No, no, that's really good. And that way, <laughs> if you if you've got those four lenses in mind, you're 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 well equipped uh, to, to 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 make a judgment than if you as you're first starting to think about ultra processed foods or trying to do, or trying to you know exercise discretion between which ones are better than others and you don't have to get it perfectly right. You just have to have it on your mind. Phil, thank you. I think we've um, had a a rich and long running conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you've covered a lot of ground. Thank you, thank you, Anthea, for uh, you know the great, great um, moderation and questioning, <laughs> as always. <laughs> so it's been fun. It has been fun, and it's great to speak with you in New Zealand. It's nice to be able to move around now, and for for you to get back to your your home country, your beautiful home country. Any any further comments, uh, papers you might like to highlight for people, or um, or personal reflections? Eighteen months on since we last spoke about the state of play and progress on ultra-processed foods research. That's one thing. We know there's lots of progress there. What about progress on policy or international agendas to address ultra-processed foods more directly? Personal reflections. Yeah, so since we last spoke, there really has been uh, an explosion, a further explosion. It was already kind of exploding, but a further explosion in the scientific evidence that we have around, you know, these foods. So... You know, with tobacco control, we saw, you know, experimental, mechanistic and observational evidence all coming together to say, you know, tobacco causes lung cancer. We're not quite at that stage with ultra-processed foods, but, you know, we, we are getting sort of close to like an evidence base where we can say, policymakers, you really need to pay attention to this. These are harmful. 
you know, um, this is why. So what we need now from here is for the World Health Organization, other, you know, international expert groups and or, or authorities, authoritative organizations to develop technical guidance and to adopt the terminology to develop more comprehensive or think more comprehensively about how we respond to this challenge as a global health challenge. So that would be my hope and my aspiration that this is what we see over the next couple of years. Mm. The other thing would be, you know, to really um, for the global food systems sort of community to, you know, really recognize and acknowledge the role that ultra-processed foods are contributing to unsustainable food systems. We need to question the role these these foods are playing in sustainable development. And we need to question the claims being made about the industry and their role in sustainable development. Uh, so this is all, I think, things that, you know, may or may not happen in the next couple of years, but <laughs> might be important to sort of, yeah, question. But I think at the end of the, also at the end of the day, you know, all of this bottles down to what is the what is the the future food system that we want, not just for us, but also our children and for gen- the generations to come. Do we want a food system that is dominated by, you know, ultra processed foods or other corporate products, where we are, you know, in this world of hyper consumption, where we are just generating um, these these huge harms to our health and the planet? because of the nature of the system in which we are sourcing, uh, preparing and consuming our food. With very, with very very long supply chains. Yeah. What does this mean for the future of the food system? Um, I'm not going to answer that because I think that's a question, you know, that we all need to reflect on. And, um, yeah, perhaps I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much. That's, it's been fantastic to speak with you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, likewise, Anthea. Uh, great to talk to you. I've been speaking with Philip Baker, who regularly consults to UN nutrition agencies and who inspires and supervises amazing PhD students doing really incredible uh, research into healthy food systems topics and uh, issues. Uh, Phil is a senior lecturer in human nutrition at the School of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences and a member of the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University, Melbourne. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. 